This episode is brought to you with support from Fairplate. Tickets and information at F-A-R-E-P-L-A-T-E dot com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Elena Santigade. On today's show, I'm excited to continue our Cheese Making Elements series with a focus on cultures. It's the Cultures Show! Admittedly, it was hard for me to get my bearings on where to even begin with this topic. Cultures in cheesemaking are crucial to the flavor, texture, and acid development of the cheese. And I found that Bronwyn and Francis Percival frame cultures they frame cultures best in their book, Reinventing the Wheel. I'm going to read a quick excerpt from their fabulous chapter, All on Cultures. Here's, here goes. One stage of modern cheesemaking would appear completely alien to a visitor from the 18th century. Modern cheesemakers add mysterious containers of liquid or even more mysterious sachets of powder to their milk. These are starter cultures, the purified strains of lactic acid bacteria that cheesemakers use to ferment their milk. In modern cheesemaking, their use is ubiquitous at every level of cheese production, from giant factories to the most boutique farmhouse operation. They are the single tool without which the modern industry would not exist. Without starter cultures, pasteurized milk cheeses would simply be impossible to make. End quote. So, generally, while working in cheese, the cultures you hear about are ripening or starter cultures and flavor or adjunct cultures. But how impactful are these cultures on the final character of a cheese? Are there moral stances to take about synthetic versus native cultures? How easy or hard is it for a cheesemaker today to make cheese using only the cultures inherent in the milk? And does that even taste good? Finally, I've been thinking about, you know, what are the socioeconomic and environmental and logistical impacts of this key ingredient for cheesemakers large and small? There's so much to talk about, and I have a feeling we'll need to do a second cultures show at some point in the future. Luckily, I have some help for navigating the world of cheese cultures. My guest today is Robert Aguilera, cheese advisor and consultant for production, distribution, and retail. Robert began as a cheesemonger, where so many of us began. He cut his teeth at Formaggio Cheese and has spent almost the past 10 years working for Fromagex, supplier of cheese cultures and equipment for retailers and cheesemakers. Now he's embarking on new projects, and we're really excited to have him on the show. So, Robert, welcome to Cutting the Curd. Hi, thank you very much. So, I mean just so much to get into, but I want to see if we can start out for our listeners, and also because I firmly believe in constantly revisiting the basics, even when you're well-seasoned in something. So what, you know, how would you describe cheese cultures? Like the cultures that we put into into milk in the cheesemaking process, what are they? So they are little forms of life that you basically have to not look at as though you're making a, a pot of stew or an oatmeal. You're actually, when you're in the form of, of 
she's making, you are a shepherd of life. Mm. You're a shepherd of these tiny little microbes that will eat the available food to them and help set the tone for the milk to then go through its different stages mm. of production mm. and all the way through to afinage, sort of aging, and to when they finally end up on a table. So there's a lot that goes into how they develop, mm-hmm. um, but what they are are really the building blocks of all life. Wow. So in essence, they know how to do what they do better than we could ever think we know what they, they are doing. Hmm. And it is interesting. It's like bacteria. I love that you use that phrase, you know, the building block of life, because bacteria is, you know, you've, you hear that tossed around when people talk about science on like grand scales and, mm. and in big picture stuff, you know, I'm, I'm like hearkening back to my college science class with that phrase, <laughs> Always, but it's true. And that, and, and, you know, cultures are bacteria, good bacteria that we um, have in cheese. So at this point in time, what percentage of cheesemakers in the U.S. would you say are using commercial cultures? And we can talk more maybe about what com- commercial cultures are. Um, but what percentage of the cheesemakers in the U.S. would say are using commer- commercial cultures of some kind in cheesemaking? Um, any of them that are doing business in cheesemaking mm-hmm. are most likely using some form of purchased culture mm-hmm. um, from many of the different culture houses that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very, very few that do their own native uh, starter cultures or even rely on the native ripening cultures in an environment. Right. Um, so it's very hard to say uh, percentage-wise. I would say it's well, 1% or less wow, that can so. use their own or, or that purport to use their own. Right, or, or in some cases... Zero any influence from a purchase. Right. In some cases, we might have, um, you know, we had uh, the folks from Parish Hill Creamery on the yep. um, on the show to talk about their Cornerstone project, and we can get into that a little bit later. But they, um, that's an example of like a specific cheese and a specific project that's trying to um, kind of free itself from purchased cultures. But in their, you know, it's it's like a very dedicated program, right? Absolutely, and it's it's a great example or great project to see it through mm-hmm. because it's being done in real time in front of you with multiple different locations mm-hmm. that are trying to derive their own native cultures and still trying to understand how they go into making the final product, mm-hmm. how they show themselves off. And mm-hmm. ultimately, they're at the whim of the life that's around them. And everything that you do, every step from the animal, how it was or where it was grazing, how it was milked, the milk itself, the components that are involved that, that will feed the available microbes in their milk, how is that going to develop? There's so many variables involved here mm-hmm. that if they come to any consistency at all, it's amazing. Right. But even more so amazing is that they do come to a sort of consistency, and you can see the differences between two different locations. Mm-hmm. But it's going to continually need study and real understanding to to really pinpoint what are their own native cultures, what are the main ones that are driving. Mm. And it's going to be a great project to continue to see through. And they're doing a great job, and they're very, very proud of it. And it's wonderful to see it on the shelves. Yeah, it's really exciting. And uh, listeners, the Cornerstone Project includes cheeses from Parrish Hill, Birch Run Hills Farm, in um, Pennsylvania and Mystic Cheese Company in Connecticut. And I can, I'll, I'll include a little info in the show notes. Um, 
but sort of so so that's an example of a project using sort of the native cultures, homegrown cultures that are coming from the milk, which are you know as you mentioned actually coming from what the animals are eating and how their environment is and this whole interconnected world. With commercial cultures, um, one thing that I feel like I never really understood when I was a cheesemonger was like, what exactly are they? Like I, I had visited cheesemakers and I would see, um, you know, them inoculate a small pail of milk with their starter culture. And I, I never really understood what exactly is it. So on more of like an elemental level, when you have a starter culture, is it usually a powder or what, how does it, how does it arrive at the cheese making plant if you're ordering from a culture house and what does it actually consist of? Yeah, primarily what they are, are either powder or frozen pellet formed um, concentrations of specific lactic acid bacteria Mm -hmm. that are harvested in a very clean environment mm-hmm. and then continually regenerated and, and in, also added with others to continually make them hardier, to make them stronger, so that it's mm. not the same culture that continues to die. Just like any culture that we live in, it's, it has to do, evolve in order to continue to be strong. And so that also, that do. protects from phage is what is a exactly. big thing, right? Um, yeah, well, think about it this way. If a culture just does not evolve as far as socially, it will just fall in upon itself. If mm. it doesn't in- include anybody else from the outside, it will it will fade away. Wow, interesting. You know, this could be applied to all kinds of things in society, Agreed. like our political landscape, for example. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, interesting. That was That's a fun direction for this show to take. <laughs> and then... Just to redirect to their elemental, really concentrated bacteria that once they're in, once they're harvested, and they are put into either a powder or into a frozen pellet form. Mm-hmm. And by frozen, I mean negative 40 degrees. So that when they finally are put into a vat of milk, they ignite right away. Mm. And depending on the types of cultures that are used, different temperatures are going to affect them differently or going right. to be optimal for them. Okay, interesting. So there are two main that people always lean on when they're making cheese. Mm-hmm. Different, I want to call them um, groups, are mesophilic right. starter cultures mm-hmm. and thermophilic And the cultures. thermophilic is the higher temperature? Exactly. It's mm-hmm. the one that can go through high scalding temperatures of 104 to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. And they won't be so destroyed. Air, right. Any cheese where you're cooking the curd at a, at a bit of an elevated temperature. Yeah, and it's if you think about it, even historically, in the Swiss Alps, you have fire in a very small room. Mm-hmm. And you keep feeding that fire, and that room gets really warm. Mm-hmm. So by virtue of that, the native starter cultures that are going to win out over Mm. hundreds of years are going to be those that can exist in that really high temperature heat room and also that high temperature cauldron. So they're really mimicking, they're they're mimicking this original sort of traditional, uh, these traditional elements that 
that we're that we're you know historically in the milk in the milk and different types of cheese making, but kind of dialing it in on performance, I assume, and efficiency and consistency. Exactly, because both of them are meant to, like they're called, start the process. Mm-hmm. And if you did not add any starter cultures, you would be at the whim of the existing cultures that are in the milk. Mm-hmm. And that might take a long time mm. for you to get from a certain pH of the milk right. and starting to grow or form more acid, which is going to be more advantageous for cheese-making process down the line. Mm-hmm. So if you did not add anything, it would take forever to get to the next point and at which you might have spoiled milk. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And with mm-hmm. really... Uh, I would assume there could even also be a version of it where if you had a lot of activity in your raw milk, there's a potential that it would acidify at a rate that could it be too quick for what you were planning to do or unwieldy, I guess, is more what I'm thinking. Yes, and Mm -hmm. that can also happen with store-bought cultures. Hmm. So ultimately, cheesemaking, as I stated from the beginning, in terms of cultures, is shepherding life. Mm. So whether you were relying on raw milk native cultures or store-bought cultures, you have to continually monitor the milk and the pH as it drops to know when it's time to start adding the next components, like rennet, Mm -hmm. coagulate, and then move from there to cooking or to draining or to molding. Mm. So you have to continually monitor the milk as it continues to change because you're in charge of knowing, all right, we have enough of this quality of lactic acid bacteria and enough of this starter culture already mm-hmm. activated. Now we need to go to the next step. Because if you don't, mm-hmm. you're out of control. Mm. Interesting. So when you're when a cheesemaker is looking at um, their options, you know, and let's say you've got these two, this fork in the road, so to speak, of, okay, I'm going to make a cheese that requires a mesophilic starter versus a thermophilic starter. Uh, once they're beyond that point... Um, what does the menu of cultures look like? Uh, what what options do you have in terms of, like, how often is a cheesemaker choosing a culture based on flavor properties that they want to eventually achieve, texture? Um, are there other elements that they're choosing based on? What is that decision-making process like? Well, on in some of the bigger cheesemaking operations, they're continually testing all sorts of cultures from many different houses Mm. to make sure that they are continuing to develop or even deepen some of the flavors that they currently have. Mm -hmm. And what's available to them beyond starter cultures are first other starter cultures that are in the same ratio or same mix of certain types, certain strains of mesophilic cultures that say lactobacillus lactis and lactobacillus cremoris. There are many different types. Mm-hmm. Even though you may see just those names, they're not always the same from one house to another or even within the same culture house. And mm-hmm. then from that point, you're moving on to cultures that will take the, the leftover products or byproduct of the starter cultures and then turn them, and mostly protein, Mm-hmm. and peptides into flavor. Mm. So you're, you're starting to rely on adjunct cultures, and okay. they're really the place where you can deepen a lot of flavors. Hmm. And then from there, you move on to ripening cultures, which will set the stage for the rind to form and also affect 
architecture on the interior. Hmm. And you do have a myriad of choices that are out there. Um, mm-hmm. And like, as I said, most cheesemakers continually test and try new things hmm. to make sure they can dial it in. Is it common for a smaller cheesemaker to be able to do that? Or you mentioned that larger cheesemakers are doing that all the time at, with different cultures from all different culture houses. But is that sort of part of the sales experience, even for a smaller or mi- medium-sized cheesemaker? For the smaller ones, they are always trying new things mm-hmm. because they continually want to develop their products. Hmm. So they're always calling to ask the different places they purchase their cultures from, what do you think I should try next, or should I keep with this strain, hmm. or how can I get or achieve the next flavor that I want to develop in right. this cheese? So it doesn't matter what the size, it, the same goal exists for the large and for the small, to develop and to deepen and to really hone in on the flavor and texture components that you want in your cheese. And was that, so So in terms of, you know, how I've known of you as a culture guy, <laughs> is is that a piece of the work that you um, had fo- have been focusing on over this past stretch? Yeah, for the, the last four years of my time at uh, Romajek, mm-hmm. it was fantastic to talk to everybody and to hear about the new cheeses they were wanting to make or some of the cheeses they currently make, the iconic ones that you know, and how they wanted to really develop those further and make them Mm. award-winning or just make them so popular that everybody wanted to buy them. Mm. And so it became a great relationship to develop the understanding of their product, what they're trying to achieve, and how the cultures that I represented it could possibly create what they are looking for. Very interesting. So that was a, a big passion of mine. Yeah. And did you find that your background as a cheesemonger with more of a sensory, um, you know, a sensory awareness of not just cheese in general, but really the landscape of cheeses that you'd find at a pretty big specialty shop in the U.S.? Did that inform a lot of the work as well? That actually was my saving grace getting into this job. Ah. Because I, I would know of cheeses from very small producers in France or in Italy and know the flavors that came out of there mm. and then go into an existing cheesemaker and find out they're wanting to make a cheese and they're describing it and it would immediately ignite in my head, oh, it's like this cheese. It's like Pichonet from the Ariège. It's, mm. it's uh, like a Robiola you know, from Piedmont. Hmm. So, so you I had a real basis. For. Yeah. And it was, it was definitely what helped me a lot as I continued to learn I could lean on that knowledge and also the final product that they were looking to get to. Right. If I knew that, I could work my way backwards through the process all the way back to culture. Hmm. And Very that was cool. a great mystery to figure out. Yeah, it's such an interesting path. It's it, it's like I I've heard a lot about, you know, how being a retailer and cheesemonger informs sales work or even work as a cheesemaker, but it's really interesting to think about how it would inform that um more sort of science-y side of things in that sense. Very cool. Yeah, in a way, the customer service that I learned at my time at Formaggio Kitchen, which was really get to know your customer to a point that you know them better than they know themselves, Hmm. but be willing to understand what they're looking for at this time, so be sensitive. That made it possible for me to work with cheesemakers who are kind of looking for the same type of service. And it's right. very rare that they get that. Hmm. And I think it's it's one of the few things that from the retail world really 
translates to the trade world when you find a person who gets there. Mm-hmm. Cheesemakers look forward to talking to them because they know they're going to talk to someone who understands the landscape in a macro scale. Right. Totally. So it's a wonderful conversation. Very cool. Well, it's time for a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment with the rest of our culture show. I'll talk to you again in a minute, Robert. This episode is brought to you with support from Fairplate, a taste of Ireland in New York, taking place Saturday, March 9th at the Rag Trader. At Fairplate, you can sip and savor Irish whiskey, cheese, grass-fed beef, and more. Tickets and information at F-A-R-E-P-L-A-T-E dot com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. I'm Elena Santigate, and I'm here with Robert Aguilera talking all about cheese cultures, those special and sometimes mysterious ingredients that help cheeses to develop. So, Robert, as we're talking about like the culture houses and different scales of cheese making and how cultures are used, I'm wondering, do culture houses specialize in their selections at all? Are there, are there different houses for different, you know, sort of approaches or anything like that? Uh, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Depends on the on the house. There are some that, depending on the country they come from, special in, specialize in the cultures for the cheeses from that mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. And there are others that span across multiple different countries, and they have developed cultures that work for multiple different styles of cheese as opposed to just one nation's mm-hmm. style. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, though, the culture that they offer are just the building blocks for anyone to take and to use them in their process and find the right one that fits for them. Right. So in, in a sense, if you're just looking for performance, you can choose a culture that normally would be used for one type of cheese, and you can try it in a hard cheese like a cheddar and actually get a result that you like and a texture that you really like. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Are there different cultures available to cheesemakers in different countries? Like, are you know, we it was interesting in our previous cheesemaking elements show where we talked about sheep's milk. Um, we learned that you know we don't have the ability to bring live animals of uh, different breeds from other countries just to easily breed them. Is it, it? Are there similar restrictions for cultures where here in the U.S. a cheesemaker wouldn't be able to buy the same cultures as somebody, say, in France or Australia? Yes. And you have to open a culture in a country. Okay. Um, so I know that for from my experience and in many cases, business drives the ability to open a culture mm. in, a, in a country. And Interesting. So you need an established, bigger producer in order for a culture that hasn't been in the country to be brought in. Hmm. But I think more and more the, ho- the different houses are figuring out that the opportunities are bigger. So how do you find a way to open new products in but again, it still has to come back to the business. How is hmm. the potential for that to really work and take off? Because right. if you bring it in and you go through all the, the work to bring it in, 
it, it's got to sell. And most of that work is, it's almost like an importer. It's falling on the culture house itself to, you know, I, I assume there's a decent amount of paperwork and regulation oh, yeah. and all that stuff. Okay. So it's interesting to think, I mean, I we do a lot of, talking about, you know, like the big players in the cheese industry and then the small family-sized farms. And it's interesting to think about an opportunity there for smaller producers to maybe even band together and show that there's large-scale support, but among many customers for certain types of cultures, for example. Sure. And it would be great to see that. And I, I would hope that more and more guilds and associations could do that, could mm. try to work on the availability and the, the different things that are not allowed in to bring them in and open them up and make it so that it's okay for Culture House to take a shot because there are multiple people interested. Right. And more so maybe even universities interested in trying products they've never tried before, which mm. is where a lot of development really takes place. Oh, you mean... A um, real understanding of how those cultures could affect different styles it. of cheese. And got the universities it. that we have in the state are pretty great right now, and hmm. they're continuing and to try to develop their programs. And I think they would be interested in things like that, like at OSU and also CBR in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more and more guilds are going to maybe even take that challenge on. Hmm. It's really interesting. It's a great way to think of It's almost like a... Um you know, a merchant's association combining their buying power to, uh, you know, influence distribution or suppliers for, to, in order to compete with the big box stores. That's, that's like my retailers, uh, how I'm translating it to my retail mind. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's so, that's so interesting and, and kind of exciting because you want to feel like if part of what sets a smaller cheesemaker apart is uh, nuanced flavor and, um, I don't know, just more of an unusual uh, flavor. It all it usually goes back to flavor. But if if part of what sets them apart is is dependent on getting a um, a unique product from a culture house, but the culture house wouldn't bring it in unless a large scale cheesemaker backed it, then you kind of lose the chance to differentiate in that way. I suppose uh, maybe, but there is one thing I will say about that. Mm-hmm. The cultures are not the pure fix, mm. and they're not no silver bullet. the biggest <laughs> influence mm-hmm. as much as they are the drivers of the production. Mm. In most cases, the native hands, environments, mm. processes, um, just the in and out goings of the world around these different production houses and also the packaging of these cheeses and also the retailing of these cheeses, is what's part of the process hmm. that makes those cheeses most sought after by customers. You so know, that's there's a, there's such a good point. There's something to be said about just the microbial environment from cow all the way through to the retail shelf hmm. that might speak more to the popularity and the development of a product more so than the cultures that are added right. at the start in hmm. the vat. Right. So, but you can influence it. Right. But if you set the stage right, Let's say for ripening a rind, you might develop a bacteria in your aging room that will be your own, hmm. even though it was started from a, a store-bought culture. Hmm. It can continue to develop if you continue to focus on the environment and how it's kept and keeping it all in a proper way to make the most advantageous cheese making in your facility. 
I really like that because it gets into that gray area that I find myself so drawn to between, you know, it's, it's like the desire to draw this line in the sand between, oh, this, this is the good side and this is the bad side. This is industrial cheese making and this is artisanal cheese making. Or, you know, if somebody adds uh, a culture cocktail to their cheese, are they completely out of the running for your someone's uh, definition of artisanal cheese? And it's really interesting to think that, that it's a much more nuanced thing, even when a cheesemaker is sort of actively using commercial cultures and, you know, the same commercial cultures maybe that a larger cheesemaker would use. Um, I love this idea that they take on a life of their own, literally, (laughs) and create, and and then it really is um, so much more interconnected than just the idea of like, you're making a stew and you have a bunch of ingredients you put in and then you get sort of a predictable end game. Well, true, because you're trying to make a consistent product mm-hmm. and everything influences it. And just to give you an example of how starter cultures or ripening cultures that you add to your production are, are store-bought and they can never win out over the wild mm. in, in some of the worst cases. Okay. So sometimes one of the most frequent examples was in the winter when cheesemaking has slowed down a bit and it's going to start back up again, say now around March. Right. And you have a soft ripened cheese, maybe goat, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. or cow, but soft with a very thin geotric of rind on it. Okay. And suddenly there's this blooming of mucor mm. on the outside. The cat hair. And a flurry of calls come in asking, what can I do to fix this? Mm. And of course, it's you've got to clean. You've got to get it out. You've got to move it out of the way so that you can develop the rind that you want. Right. But the question always comes down to, well, where did this come from? Hmm. Yeah. And one of the best examples of that would be, well, you've come to the end of the one year, and now you're in a lull mm. in the business, and now you're going to re-up by introducing or getting more uh, product, let's say packaging, cardboard packaging, right? and bring it into your facility. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that the doorway that you bring that packaging into is also the same hmm. entryway that you use to get your production room. Right. Wow. You may have introduced Ucor that way. Wow. From the cardboard. It just needs to be sort of in the same airspace, basically. It does. So that speaks to, again, the consistency and the health of hmm. your place, the health of an aging environment, and also the processes, mm-hmm. because everything will have an influence if you let it. Right. And wild cultures are very difficult to destroy. Right. Especially like, it's also like, if you, I, I think cheesemakers dread, the cheesemakers that I've talked to have, you know, a nightmare about blue cheese mold appearing on that soft ripened cheese <laughs> in the aging room. And then you think, no, the spores are here. Yeah. And how do you, how do you, how do you clean that? How do you fix that? You oh, yeah, start yeah. from round zero. Yeah. Very tricky. It's it's a difficult thing. Hmm. Really interesting. I love, you know, it's like just when you think that you can dial in on each step of the cheesemaking process, it's good to be reminded that there is sort of this overarching invisible step that's the interconnectivity of everything. And that's... And it's very hard to focus on. Yeah, yeah. It, it, It can be a difficult thing. And I had a wonderful vantage point of being able to 
ask questions and try to decipher what the full story was and even bounce that back off of a producer mm-hmm. and find out if that rings true mm. and then continue to get information that either confirms or helps me understand better what the situation is, which hopefully will influence a decision or a trial with them mm-hmm. so that we can improve the situation. And when it improved, it was a great win. Totally. I imagine that's hugely satisfying. And we're it's also a wonderful type of conversation to always have. Yeah. In reality. And we're talking about I mean, I, I also know you as my former cheese paper supplier. I mean, you're yeah. you're talking about equipment and, and materials that are used at each step of the process. So exactly. um, that's a whole other fun realm to think about as well. Oh, big time. Um, and Oh, go ahead. We could go on and on about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't worry. Cheese paper will definitely be a cheese making elements episode. So we'll Great. we'll definitely have you back on the air to talk about that. I can't wait for that one. I'm ready. Okay. So I can't believe it, but we're getting to the end of our episode. I do have two sort of quick fire questions for you. Sure. So the first one is, what advice would you give to folks in the cheese industry who are interested in expanding their understanding of commercial cultures? And I'm thinking, I mean, in terms of cheesemaker resources, we could add some stuff to the show page if you, you know, if there are um, culture houses you'd want to point people to, or maybe we should point people to you, because it sounds like you're, uh, you know, taking on interesting projects and and have this amazing wealth of information. But I'm also thinking about people who are looking to grow their careers in cheese and kind of looking beyond the traditional, like, cheesemonger to sales rep or distributor position. Um, Do you have any advice for people to kind of dip their toe in the culture house world? The best place I can point to besides having conversations with me whenever people feel like reaching out would be uh, Pat Pawalski's Cheese Science Toolkit. Mm. You've got to go there. It is one of the best examples of science and approachable at the same time, but also with the right information that you need to continually hone your understanding of different cheeses that you have in your case. Yes. And I would say the, the more that you do that as a monger or as a distributor, the better you're situated to have conversations that will lead to more solutions. Hmm. So the more conversations we can have, the better, and there are great examples like that. Um, And, of course, any of the culture houses, just ask the questions that you need to. What is this culture all about? Hmm. I I need more information on it. Can you send me a text sheet? Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit more about it, ask questions? And if they don't have the answers, they will most likely point you in a direction to find out more. And, again... They can always read out, reach out to you. They can always reach out to me. Right. And we can start those conversations. I think the more we can talk, the better. That's great. All right. Well, I'll definitely include, uh, we'll add a link to the Cheese Science Toolkit on the show notes. That was a great tip. That's awesome. Um, okay. Final question, Robert. Sure. What was the last cheese you ate? Uh, the last cheese I had was from Briar Rose Creamery. Mm. Um, I got to visit Sarah Marcus out there in beautiful Dundee, Oregon. Oh, wow. I wish I would like to transport uh, myself over there right now. (laughs) And um, just all of her cheeses are are amazing. Yeah. I mean, they're they're amazing in the fact that the milk that she gets for her cow milk cheeses Mm -hmm. somehow has this really beautiful tropical, almost coconut, almost pineapple flavors to it naturally. And it comes through in the cheeses in different ways. 
Wow, that's it's wild. pretty amazing. All the things that she's making there. All right, Briar Rose. Got it. Please do. Now we got to check that out too. Wow. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining me on air. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great. And we'll do it again when we talk about the paper. Don't worry. (laughs) Stay tuned for that. Okay, great. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. There was a lot to unpack here, and I feel like we we did only barely scratch the surface. So if you are or know a cheesemaker who is producing cheese using a homemade starter culture or doing interesting things with commercial cultures and shepherding that life into delicious cheeses that we all love to enjoy, we'd love to hear about it. Please please keep the conversation going with us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Cutting the Curd, or shoot us an email at Cutting the Curd at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week with more Cutting the Curd. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.